Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Good morning. My name is Daryl Corzine, and my wife and I are part of the Bertrand Community Group. I'm going to be reading from John 2 this morning, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out, all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen, amen. Thank you, Daryl. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for spending your Sunday with us. There's a connect card on the resource wall, or you can scan one of the QR codes on your way out. Um, We would love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, and to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, Trent will bring you one. Uh, If you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. And this is also a good opportunity for me to plug the Redeemer Church app. We have have, uh, sermon notes on there if you'd like it, so you can go into your app store and, and download the Redeemer Church app. So last week, uh, I gave us a word of caution on some of these more familiar stories in the scripture. That word of caution is this, that even if you've heard this story all of your life, don't check out. Uh, There is something for all of us uh, in, in the Holy Scriptures this morning. I love this story because it pushes back pretty aggressively against some of the Uh, more common mental pictures that culture tends to have of Jesus. So if I were to ask you, hey, tell me about Jesus. Not like, hey, tell me the gospel of Jesus, but hey, tell me about the person of Jesus. Depending on who you are, you may paint a picture of like sweet and gentle Jesus. He might be holding a child in his lap or petting a lamb. Uh, His hair is probably flowing in the breeze. All the while, he's sitting in front of his VW van teaching you about love and peace and recycling, right? <laughs> wearing, wearing Birkenstocks, most, most definitely. So. But most often, we don't associate this Jesus when we think about Jesus, like the whip-wielding Jesus flipping over tables like the Incredible Hulk and running off livestock like a, a Western cattle wrestler, right? 
We often think of peaceful Jesus, not righteously angry Jesus. It's interesting to think about angry Jesus or Jesus getting angry. Because if Jesus is God and God is love, then how can Jesus be angry? And much less, how can Jesus be angry at the temple, the most holy place in the world at the time? The gospel shows us that the life of Jesus gives us a picture of the wondrous love of God who condescends to earth to save sinners for his glory. And he does this in genuine love for creation. But what this text also shows us today is that God's genuine love is compatible with God's righteous anger against sin. And God himself has poured out his anger on his own son. And he did so on your behalf. You will never have to experience God's righteous anger against your sin if you are in Christ. And that is really good news. This text shows us that Jesus is angry. And Jesus is angry at the hypocrisy that perverts the word of God. And so the implication for us then is this, that the things that grieve God should also grieve us as believers. For our purposes today, I'd like to dive into this a little more. This text is calling us to a right and pure worship. And so I just want us to lay this text over our lives this morning. The question for us this morning is this. Is our devotion to God rooted in what Christ has accomplished for us through his cross and his resurrection and his ascension? Or... Are we more devoted to the cultural or personal expectations, example, like the churchy expectations placed upon us? Maybe a better way to ask this question is this. Why are we here? Why are we here? Are we here because the cross of Christ? through his resurrection, has saved us? Are we here because Jesus has saved us, or is it something else? Are we here because we're trying to earn God's love? Are we here because we're trying to be seen? Looking like we have ourselves together in front of one another and pretending before God and ourselves? Are we just showing up because that's what we do on Sundays? If you are going through the motions of Christianity, if you are purely religious or moral, but without any thought to Jesus, without any thought of Christ, then this text is a caution to you. My hope for all of us is this, Christian, that your desires would be to magnify Christ, that your desires would be to exalt Jesus in your life because he is worthy. Listen, God loves you, Christian. God loves you. God is not angry with you, but God does want more from you than empty devotion. God wants your whole life. And in order to give you life and life abundantly, God wants your whole life and he wants your submission to him. So again, My hope this morning is that this text will lead us to faith and lead us to dependency in Jesus. 
My hope is that this text will lead us to deep prayer to Jesus, and it will lead us as people who have been forgiven greatly to be forgiving towards one another. If you're lacking in one or more of these areas, as all of us are to some degree, I'd encourage you just to really consider where that place may be, where you may be lacking. And I would just ask you that you would begin praying right now that the Holy Spirit would soften your hearts and that you would really examine your heart and your motives in your life, particularly in matters of the faith. So we have a lot to discuss in this text, so let's pray and then we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you, God in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would approach this text with humility. Lord, that you would illuminate our eyes and our ears to what you have to say to us this morning. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. And conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. Hey, real quick, before we go any further, if you have kids back there, just... Be sure to tell Kim what a great job she's doing. Um, it's, it's a party in some ways, and it's Lord of the Flies in other ways. And, and every week, every week, it's awesome. And Kim is doing such an awesome job. So um, be sure you, you tell her uh, how much you appreciate her. Uh, I certainly appreciate all the work she's doing. Um, okay, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, it says, After this, he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so there is a lot of context that we need to unpack before we dig into this text fully this morning. Uh, Church, it's important for you as you read your Bible to try to understand the context in which each verse, each book, each chapter was written. So, so much of John's gospel is centered on this Jewish festival of the Passover. John wants us to never, ever lose sight of why Jesus came. This festival takes place in Jerusalem. So, Passover, the very first Passover, takes place in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. It's when the nation of Israel sacrificed lambs, pure and spotless lambs, and with their blood, they painted their doorposts and the lintels of their homes, and when the Spirit of God would see this blood, he would then pass over the house and save those inside. Conversely, the Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites did not do this, and the Spirit of God then would enter into the house and kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses telling Pharaoh, God says to let my people go. And Pharaoh repeatedly refuses. So God then sends these plagues, and this particular plague is the last plague in a long line of plagues. And it is a response to Pharaoh's consistent unwillingness to be obedient to God. And it is God flexing, 
God showing, God demonstrating his power and his might and his glory for the watching world, including his own people, so that they might worship him rightly. The Israelites then were set free from Egyptian slavery immediately following this plague. And so every year at Passover, the Israelites would set aside a day or a week, rather, by uh, remembering this moment. They would sacrifice lambs, and they would have a Passover feast at this festival in Jerusalem. Now, it was a requirement for Jews to attend the Passover celebration every year. So you would make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And, and, excuse me, and if you were a male who was 19 years of age or older, you would be required to pay a temple tax at this festival as well. So not only did you have to go, you were required to pay to go. Regardless of where you lived in the world, you would have to make this trek once a year. I was... uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but in like the end of Mark, when Jesus is carrying his cross, we see uh, Jesus pass by this man, Simon of Cyrene, who is a Jew from what is today Libya, who had made his trek to Jerusalem for the Passover, thousand miles for this for this for this festival. So, regardless of where you lived, you were required to go as a Jew. One ch- church historian by the name of Josephus. Dude, I I paused. I have it in my notes to pause for you to go, hey. Josephus, you missed it again. All right, all right. Josephus said that the, it's okay, it's okay. But, But his name was Josephus. He said that the population of Jerusalem would increase 10 times at the time of the Passover. And so there are a ton of people in the city this week. So Jesus and his disciples walk into the temple And Jesus does not like what he sees. Verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. All right, so more more context for us. It is expected then that these pilgrims would sacrifice animals that were pure and spotless, spotless and without blemishes. And who is it that gets to determine the purity of these animals? It's these Jewish leaders. And they have a vested interest in the money that, the, that was brought in at the temple because it helped them maintain their lifestyles. So these pilgrims would most often just buy their animals at the temple. Because let's say, for example, you lived 45 miles away from Jerusalem. You had to make this pilgrimage on foot. And if you wanted to bring your own animal, you were pulling along a bull or a lamb. And let's say you got there and you presented it to the Jewish leaders for your sacrifice. And they said, this is not a pure and spotless animal. This has blemishes. Well, then you would be required to buy a new sacrifice and take your bull or your lamb back home with you 45 miles in the other direction. And you were also in a desert and it was dry. So it's just more convenient to buy your sacrifice at the source. So again, we have this guy named Josephus. 
Thank you. All right, that'll work. He tells us that the, at the temple, at the time of Passover, the cost of these animals would increase 16 times. He also says that 255,000 lambs would be sold and sacrificed during the time of the Passover. And then we have, in, in our text today, we have the mention of these pigeons, Pigeons are what the poor people would have to buy. Usually, like just to use a conversion reference for us, they'd be like 25 cents a piece on a normal, a normal day. At the time of the Passover, they would cost around $4. Beyond that, before all this, the animals used to be sold a few miles out of town on the way towards the temple. But out of convenience, they moved them into part of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the place where the Gentiles could go in. Some of these Gentiles were probably uh, converts to Judaism, but this is as far into the temple as they could go because the main area was reserved for ethnic Jews. So maybe you're sitting out there, you know, where... Um, in a capitalist society, maybe you're out there yeah, like, yeah, this makes sense. Supply and demand, right? Usually in our time, businesses try to create the least amount of friction for you so that you will spend your money with them. But the temple is not meant to be a place of business. It was a place where God dwelt. It was a place where the Holy of Holies was, and the Spirit of God was in there, in this temple. God consecrated the temple when it was rebuilt, and God had very specific laws and commands about how we were to worship at the temple and how we are to approach him. The temple was meant to be holy. When you went to the temple... You were meant to go with an expectation that you could meet with God through the word of God and be forgiven by the sacrifices. And this is no longer the case. The temple was a sacred and a holy place. It was a house of worship and prayer. It's a place where God's word was to be read and to be revered. But instead, instead of creating a holy place of worship for these Gentiles and really for the the Jews they were supposed to be leading, they were not honoring the temple. The Jewish leaders had turned the court of the Gentiles into a noisy marketplace. This was the only place within the temple gates that Gentiles were allowed to worship. This was the only place within the temple that Gentiles would be allowed to pray. And the Jewish leaders had created a place to serve themselves. Think about what it would be like to be a Gentile convert to Judaism, and this is your first Passover ever, and you're coming to worship, and you see all of this commerce. You're probably thinking, this religion feels like a prop to take people's money. More than that, the temple actually had its own currency, and so you would have to go in, you would have to see these money changers to exchange your foreign currency for the temple currency. 
The temple currency was made of pure silver, and it had to meet specific standards or it wasn't allowed to be used. And so you'd take your money, and you'd exchange it at the temple, and there was a high fee to make these exchanges. You basically had no choice. Either you sacrificed at the temple, or you were, you were in danger of not following God's law. This is the height of extortion. This is church sponsored extortion. And here comes Jesus. Looking at all of this, he's hearing the bleeding of these animals and the cooing of these doves that have replaced the silent and penitent prayers of believers. The place that used to be a place for humble worship of God has become a place where the poor are exploited. And the religious elites are lining their pockets. And Jesus is angry. Jesus has a proper understanding of the law and what God requires for true and right worship. And this is patently not it. The temple was built by God's people according to God's very specific commands, his very specific measurements and specifications as as to how it was going to be built. There were also laws about who was supposed to serve where and how within the temple. And one purpose of both the specifications of the temple and the law is to highlight the difference between God and us. We are broken and God is perfect. We are broken and sinful, and God is wholly perfect. And by turning this event into a money-making event, they are totally and completely missing the point of the Passover. Listen, God knows the intent of our hearts. This isn't a step by bringing these animals into the temple. This isn't a step to make it more convenient for us. This isn't a step in efficiency. This is an exercise in greed. The temple was the center of Jewish life and worship. And therefore, what we're seeing in this text is really the state of the heart of the Jewish leaders at this time. The Passover had become a spectacle and a show rather than a celebration to remember God's goodness to his people. So Jesus takes his whip and he drives out the livestock and he overturns the money tables and he throws the pigeons, uh, he opens their cages and they fly off and Jesus is causing a scene. Notice that Jesus says, my father's house. He doesn't say our father's house, but my father's house. Matt Carter says it like this. This choice of words implies that men, the men doing this, the exploiting, are not the children of God. If you come to worship God week after week and all you think about is yourself and how you can profit from this, what you like or dislike, what you want or don't want, what bothers you or satisfies you, then you may not be a child of God. God's people live in awe of him. God's people worship him. Coming to God in faith requires turning from self-worship to true worship. If each Sunday is a narcissistic activity of self-worship, then you are walking in the footsteps of these temple merchants. 
lay that over your life for a second. What do you worship? Who do you worship? How about this one? When I say worship, do you think about more than just singing? Do you consider your whole life as worship? We're going to talk about this more in a minute, but do you function like the church exists for you and your benefit primarily? Christian, are you ever just in awe of what God has done? Do you ever just sit and wonder at the amazement that God became a man to save sinners? Are you ever just in awe of God? Verse 17, the text says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. I wonder what it would have been like for Jesus' disciples to witness this. And they're Jews. They are lifelong, born into it, Jews. There was probably equal parts fear and amazement on their behalf. Like who in their right mind would challenge the Jewish authorities like this? They're probably thinking, Jesus has really stepped in it. This is not going to go unnoticed. And this is not going to please the Jewish leaders. But wow. <laughs> Jesus acted with such assertiveness. Like he is completely ambivalent to the consequences of his actions. Jesus, the ultimate punk rock move. Yeah. John writes this. Or John writes that his disciples, who are Jewish men, knew the scriptures and they recalled the Psalms. They recalled this particular psalm, uh, Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That is a quote from David. This is a psalm of David. This is a psalm of lament. If, if you want to go back 18 months or so in some of our church liturgy, David is being criticized by opponents who fail to understand why David is so committed to the temple. David's not committed to the temple as a building, but as a dwelling place of the Lord. David in this psalm is rightly concerned with God's reputation amongst the people of God, as well as the nations that surround them. He's wanting those who mock him as God's chosen king at this moment in history to be dealt with, because God is a holy God. And God is worthy to be obeyed. So Jesus then is the promised Messiah from the line of David. He is greater than David, and his zeal for the house of God would be great as well. Jesus is angry, and he's angry because there is abuse going on at the temple. It's not only demonstrating his commitment to the Father, but it's also an affirmation that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has cleansed the temple. All right, just real quickly, this is important, I think. Uh, again, more for 
for context and Bible study purposes. The synoptic gospels, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known, put the cleansing of the temple at the end of their writings at the Passover week. It's like a few days before Jesus is arrested and crucified. John, on the other hand, has this event immediately following Jesus' first miracle at Cana that we discussed last week. So some commentators suggest that uh, chronology, chronologically, the order is not all that important to this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to be giving more of a, a biography of Jesus, whereas John seems more intent on writing some of these spiritual workings of Jesus. So it's possible that this event happens a few days before Jesus is crucified, and John is taking a little um, license as the author of, of, this, of this book. But other people suggest, like Robert Sky R.C. Sproul, that it is entirely possible that based on the way that John has written up to this point in the work, that he is making painstaking efforts to set up a chronology for us. So, for example, in chapter 1, he says, the next day, like four times. The next day. So while we can't be sure, it is possible that Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice. Because the hypocrisy continued. Once here at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and once at the conclusion. Jesus has overturned the, the money tables. And it would appear that the next year they were back up and operating. I tend to agree that that, that is a, a strong possibility. So that's just for your edification. Uh, verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They are wanting to know, it's like, Jesus, why would you do that? Justify yourself for this action, please, Jesus. And I think that is an interesting question. It's as if they recognize there is something unique and special maybe about this Jesus guy. I don't like what he did, but I'd like to hear more from him. But this question also reveals that they do no self-reflection whatsoever. They just do that whole blame shift thing. Jesus, why did you do this? Not, Jesus, you were right for doing this. They don't see their sin. They don't see why Jesus is provoked to anger. They ask for a sign. So Jesus responds to them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay, I don't think this is a leap. And if you think this is a leap, I'm very sorry. Uh, but I, I don't think it's a leap. So here we go. Um, I think that these three verses could serve as a warning for us. I wonder, this is going back to something I said earlier, but I wonder if we were to go around the room and have a discussion and ask one another about what we are zealous for. I wonder what the responses would be. It sort of feels like in our day and time that we have a lot of church options for sure. I had a guy tell me recently, and I'm not mad at him, but I did have a guy tell me recently that he couldn't fellowship at Redeemer or Odessa because we didn't have a big student ministry for his kid. His kid was six months old. So 
Uh, <laughs> I just wonder if we're zealous for the right things, right? I think good programming is good, but not at the expense of the Word of God. And not at the expense of true and right worship that extends well beyond music. Church, our lives ought to be submitted to God in worship. And this is evidenced by how you steward your time. And how you steward your career. And how you steward your family. And how you steward your resources. And how we steward our bodies. And how we steward our very existences. If you're in Christ, your life does not belong to you. Christ, through his resurrection, has, a, has laid a claim on your life, Christian. And he is worthy of your zeal. He is worthy of your pursuit. And if all we ever do is sit in church, but the word of God doesn't propel you to faith or propel you towards obedience to God in Christ, then I would lovingly submit that that is a dangerous place to be. If we're not careful, if we make the church about us, we easily become like the religious leaders in the text. Saying one thing, but caring far more about our own self-interest and self-protection than we do of Christ. These religious leaders don't know God. They don't know God, and therefore they don't honor God with their lives. These religious leaders are missing the significance of this moment. Jesus comes in and fulfills the prophecy of the psalm, and, and his authority is his zeal for the house of God. They should have recognized this as the leaders of the nation of Israel, but they are so absorbed with their selves that they fail to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is prophesying about his death and resurrection. Look at verse 21 and 22. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and what the word and, and the word that Jesus had spoken. We see Jesus reference the temple, and the text says he's actually referencing himself. There are a couple things that we need, need to take note of here. The temple is where God meets man. And just to call us back to the beginning, the prologue of John, Jesus, the text says, has come and dwelt among us. Jesus is God, and through him, God has come to man in a new and a unique way. Jesus is the greater David, and Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus has tabernacled. Jesus has templed among us. And because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Jesus dwells inside of us. And now, Christians, that means Christ lives in you. You, church, are a temple of God. Additionally, 
The temple is where sacrifices were made on behalf of the sins of the people. And now, Jesus is not just the temple, but he is also the sacrifice. The requirement of a payment for sin was the shedding of blood in order to cover it, in order to cover the sin, which means this. There are serious consequences for sin. Something had to die to cover it. Remember the words of John the Baptist a few weeks ago? He says, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is the new and better sacrifice. And now we see him as the new and better eternal temple of God. This temple, this temple that Jesus is talking about was actually destroyed in 70 A.D., But Jesus rose victorious, just as he prophesied in this text. Jesus is the eternal temple. Jesus has sacrificed himself on our behalf. Our sin required a sacrifice because of our sin against God, which is more than just bad choices. It's willful disobedience and rebellion. And not just willful disobedience and rebellion, but disobedience and rebellion against a holy and just and righteous God. We needed a sacrifice to pay for our sins. And Jesus willingly paid for them. He bore our sin. He bore our shame upon himself on the cross. And God is rightly angered by sin. And Jesus willingly averted God's righteous anger against your sin onto himself for you. It's possible that you read about God's anger and that can lead you to fear and despair, especially when you consider just how sinful you really are apart from God. And listen, if you refuse to repent, if you refuse to submit your life to Christ by faith, if you refuse to turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith and receive his forgiveness, then you should despair. Because if you are not a follower of Jesus, you will stand before God and give an account of your life, and you will stand before God condemned. No amount of good deeds can purchase your pardon. God's anger is only diverted away from you through the sacrifice of Christ that has purchased you. So maybe you read this text as a Christian, and it leads you to fear and despair. Let me say this, Christian... God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you because Jesus died. But more importantly, Jesus rose. Which means that God has accepted Jesus' death on your behalf. So you can walk confidently in faith and forgiveness. God is not angry with you. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of your salvation, Christians. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you really do struggle with assurances, like knowing, fully resting, eternal security, assurance of salvation. Maybe you really struggle with that. May I just call you back to something? There's an empty tomb. There is an empty tomb where Jesus was laid. He's not there. He is risen just like he said he would. You have now been given his righteousness in exchange for your sin. And what a gift that is. Christian, remember the resurrection. Because this is our hope. 
Our faith is anchored into the truth that Christ Jesus rose, and without the resurrection, we are hopeless. Christian, you have been bought at such a high cost, so may that lead you to worship and awe. What this text shows us is that Jesus is not after the external appearance of faith, but that he's far more concerned with the motives of our hearts. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your life in complete devotion and submission to him, not the external show of religion. Showing up to church, though it may make you feel better for a second, that's not the goal. Serving and giving and living on mission are all really good things. And as your pastor and one of person in leadership here, we really do appreciate it. Those are all good things. But it is entirely possible to do all the stuff and miss the reason in the process. We serve a God who has saved us. And our response then is to follow him. And we follow him in devotion. And to just go through the motions is not the calling of God on your life. God invites us into a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit by the blood of Christ. And that is infinitely better than just empty religion. There is a cross and there is an empty tomb. Because Jesus, our Passover and sacrificial lamb, died in our place. Jesus judges our hypocrisy with righteousness, and Jesus extends grace to those who seek him in faith. The call to have faith in God is to trust the one who willingly died in your place. God is pleased with you, Christian. God is pleased to use you, Christian. God is pleased to use men and women who are weak enough to admit our need for him. Our God is a God of divine mercy. Our God is a God of divine justice. He will not tolerate sin. He takes it so seriously that he came to die. He loves you so much that he came to die. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can know that God delights in showing mercy. We also know that because of Jesus' death on the cross, you cannot look at the sacrifice of God to you and remain unchanged and remain unmoved. What we see in the cleansing of the temple is actually that Jesus actually cursed the temple. And so that what this teaches us is that if you continue to harden your hearts, if you look at Scripture and see what Christ is calling you to, and it doesn't motivate you to pursue Jesus, to love Jesus more, if it doesn't motivate you to connect and invest deeply in the bride of Christ, then it is possible that you may think you're a believer and you may not be. Jesus is merciful, yes, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished because he is just, and to let it slide would not be right or just. Our debt had to be paid. And there is a punishment that Jesus bore for us. And praise God for this. Jesus paid it for you. And now you have to decide, is Jesus worth it? 
You can continue to play churchy games. You can continue to check religious boxes. But if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, you will be cursed to eternal judgment. There is grace for you, sinner, to repent and believe in Jesus. But that time for you to believe is now. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know really anything other than that Jesus saves. You just have to admit your neediness and your sinfulness to Jesus. You have to confess that you are a sinner in need of the saving grace of Christ. And Christ is either everything to you or he is nothing. Listen, I'm almost done. (laughs) Before this becomes a try harder do better, yes and amen type moment. Can I remind you of something? Be encouraged because you will continue to sin as long as you are on the earth. And it's good and right to be broken and grieved about your sin. But the goal is to grow in holiness, not just to simply stop sinning. Growth and holiness looks like being quicker to repent and slower to repeat our sins. just want to encourage you, be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself as you work out your faith. Be patient with yourself as you desire and seek holiness. Rest in Jesus. Rest in Christ's completed work for you. Christ is our sacrificial lamb. Christ intercedes for us by his blood. Christ is zealous for God's honor when we are not. Christ gives us and grows in us desires for him. So we can rest in the completed work of Jesus on our behalf and strive to honor him with our lives. Christ will grow us through our pursuit of him by the Holy Spirit, through the word, and in the body of Christ. Church, you have everything you need. You have everything you need to follow him because Jesus has made a way for us through himself. So consider this Jesus who is worthy to be followed and submit to him in faith and obedience. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.